Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So Liz, happy yeah. news to start Happy Hour, which we always do. Okay. Today is our, well today, this marks our 50th podcast. It is our golden anniversary. Are you <laughs> going to take me somewhere special? You get diamonds. <laughs> Isn't it diamonds for 50 or is it platinum? I'll, I'll take it. I thought it was golden. You know what? It's a vaccine. <laughs> it's a what? It's a vaccine. <laughs> it's it's two shots, not just one. It's two. It could be more because there's a booster shot necessary. Um. So for our listener, we have even more exciting news. Our special guest, Steve Dace from The Blaze, but also best-selling author, which he accumulated that title rather quickly the last few days, um, has written the definitive book on our arch enemy, all of ours, uh, <laughs> Dr. Anthony Fauci, who Liz and I have been blasting really since what, for a good year since yeah. last March. We got hip to him pretty quick or you did. Cause you're super, super into that. And I'm was shortly after. Yeah, we were, we were both right there, but it was a small group a very an infinitesimal group. Um, and Steve was one of those and he has collected all of the receipts on the most dangerous man ever to serve in government who is not elected, Anthony Fauci. So Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, ladies. Happy anniversary. Um, <laughs> I will consider myself every man would always wants to be the, the, the uh, an anniversary present to two ladies, so I will count that as uh, another <laughs> marker for uh, my incredibly lucky week this week. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, and like all women, we did have to remind you today that it was our anniversary. <laughs> yes, that's you okay. <laughs> you know, what's funny is is it's actually my wedding anniversary is this weekend. So uh, in real life, so thank you for reminding me of that as well. Do not forget that. <laughs> yes. Do not. Is Mrs. Dace going to get lots of copies of the Faucian bargain? Uh, Mrs. Dace is enjoying all the all the copies of Faucian bargain that are being sold. I'll tell you that. I mean, if I want to know where this thing is at on the charts every hour, I'm getting updates. You know, I just got a I got an email from uh, the uh, literally just I was just looking at an email the last ten minutes she sent me of of a, of a from a jeweler of a piece of jewelry she thought was really nice. So I don't know if that's. <laughs> You tell me, ladies, is that subtlety or, or what is that? I'm not really sure. So. She's a smart lady. She's yes. smart. We, we, like, we like her already. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. And this is so important, not just for your own professional sake, although I know it's gratifying, but I know you're even happier about getting the yeah. message out about Anthony Fauci. So talk a little bit about your book, how you put it together and, you know, what you want people to take away from it. Well, this project, ladies, I mean, it literally just came together in the last two months. I mean, if you guys have written books, you guys know the publishing process that, you know, typically however long it takes you to come up with a, a manuscript somebody wants to publish and then that negotiation process. And then once that's finalized, just the editing, the graphics distribution, you know, it's typically about six months after you finish a manuscript that a book will actually come out. And we had just finished uh promoting and releasing uh, the sequel to my 2016 book, A Nefarious Plot, which is about uh, how a demon general from hell named Lord Nefarious, how we took over America. We're actually 
getting ready that, that we're in the final script writing phase of turning that book into a film. Uh, we're going to start shooting it later this year. Wow. And so we had, we had just put out a, a, a sequel book to that over Christmas called a nefarious Carol. And we had just finished promoting it and everything after the holidays. And my publisher called me uh, in late January and said, Hey, um, I I'm looking at, and, and you know, our publisher uh, is post Hill press. Uh, they're run by a guy named Anthony Zaccardi, who's a, a hardcore conservative used to run, I want to say it's Simon and Schuster. One of the major publishing houses in the country used to run it. And he called me up uh, out of the blue uh, and said, I know you're probably exhausted and you're getting ready to film a movie. But if, you know, uh, listening to your show over the last year, I know you have a ton of COVID content. And I think we have an opportunity to uh, I can sense the momentum is changing against Fauci. And I think we can maybe drive a stake through his heart. Uh, and maybe you could write a definitive reference guide with all the sources you've compiled over the last year. And, and I'll just skip the normal publishing process. I'll, I'll do it all straight to paperback so that I can be personally responsible for, um, uh, you know, maintaining inventory at Amazon. It'll mean people can only get it at Amazon, but they'll be able to get it right away. Could you get me a manuscript by April 15th? And I looked at the, I said, sure. And then I looked at the calendar and I thought, you know, I love March Madness. I didn't get my tournament last year and that's coming up. So I, I went to my, uh, my assistant here on our show, Todd, and I said, guess what? You're getting a co-writing credit because uh, for me to get, I want to get the book done by the time March Madness begins so I can veg out and watch the tournament. (laughs) So you're going to get a co-writing credit because I'm going to, I'm going to charge you with going through all of our COVID catalog of, of, of content over the last year, pull out the best stuff, the best sources, uh, put it in. And here's a list. And, and him and I came up with a list of the chapters, all the various subjects we wanted to touch on from masks uh, to uh, asymptomatic spread and everything else. And just catalog it in those chapters for me. And if you do that, I'll be able to turn around a pretty quick narrative. And hopefully we can get the manuscript turned in by the time March Madness starts so I can just, uh, you know, be a bump on a log. He did such a phenomenal job of cataloging everything. It only took me about a week or two uh, to compose it into a narrative. And we actually had the entire book and everything ready to be published before the NSA tournament was even over. So uh, Anthony Zaccardi at Post Hill deserves a lot of credit for this. It was his brainchild. He kind of stoked the flame. He was the straw that stirred the drink here. And then Todd did such a, my, who gets a co-credit there, Todd Erzin, did such a great <laughs> job cataloging that content that, it made my job a lot easier. And now we had no official release date. Um, we were just, however long it took us to get it done, we got it done. It just so happened that we were able to get it done and on sale at Amazon for, for Tuesday, March 30th. Well, that is the same day that the book written by that uh, adorable little girl who did the uh, inaugural poem for Biden came out with her book on the exact same day. And <laughs> What's funny is right now in America, the number, the top two selling, I mean, Amazon is where 83% of all books in America are sold. So if you're number one on Amazon, you're the highest selling book in the country that, at that time. The top two selling books in the country right now, ladies, are my book about Fauci and this book about the Biden inaugural poem. <laughs> and, and, that, and if that's not a portrait of the two Americas, man, I, I don't know what is. Indeed. That's perfect. <laughs> Oh, who would buy that other book? 
Like, why? I said she was an adorable little girl. I didn't say I would buy her book. Those are two. No, I just wonder, like, what what would you? I don't know. Maybe gift or something or whatever. Anyway, in kind contribution. The Suez Canal was blocked was blocked recently, and they warned us of another (laughs) toilet paper shortage. So there you are. (laughs) There you go. And I'm pulling it up right here. Here it is. Fauci and Bargain, the most powerful and dangerous bureaucrat in American history. And then followed by The Hill We Climb, an inaugural poem for the country. So oh, there you go. Good grief. <laughs> we're going to see that, that um, The Hill We Climb. That is going to be in the dollar stores. Like we're going to see that in or in those bins in front of Save On, the drug stores, where it's like you can take a book for free. Anyway, I'm sorry. We're way off and I'm being really nasty. But um, congratulations. It seems like this is a hot topic. People hate Anthony Fauci. Who knew? Right. Yes. I mean, maybe we would have learned our lesson after the last few years. But who knew that a completely media concocted construct and uh, and promoted agate prop? Um, would end up, if someone dared step to them, uh, mano y mano, would end up drawing the adoration of the other half of the country that is completely and totally ignored. I, I sort of feel like that's a storyline yeah. that maybe we should have learned over the course of the last few years, but I guess we just kind of tripped into this accidentally, I guess. But in all seriousness, you know, uh, The Blaze is one of the largest conservative media platforms in the country, but I'm not... Mark Levin, Glenn Beck, Stephen Crowder, there are, you know, cornerstones here. And uh, their success allows me to enjoy more modest success with my show. There, there, there's no way I could generate a number one bestseller on my own. And we hit number one even before we got on Tucker last night. And uh, a lot of the publicity, like talking to you ladies, has begun to kick in. This just happened organically. My own audience just following. And, you know, our show has grown by some metrics, two to 300% in the last year, taking on the COVID uh, panic porn fight. And, right. and, and, and we kind of, by, by putting it out paperback first, we didn't intend this, but by doing this, we, we put out a cheaper book for 15 bucks instead of 30, 40 bucks for a hardcover. And, and what happened is I'm just inundated hundreds of emails every day from people. I bought five copies, I bought 10, I bought six. With the cheaper rate, People now are feeling like they can buy a bunch of them and, and send them to loved ones or family members who are stricken by fear uh, and things of that nature. Uh, we found out last night the House Freedom Caucus bought 5,000 copies of the book uh, to distribute to their list. Um, our public, my publisher told me this morning he's he's I mean he's getting people coming out of the woodwork asking him various groups and stuff around the country uh, how can they bulk purchase this thing and so. Um, you know, I was on Jesse Kelly's show this morning and I'm not, you know, David Limbaugh is a good friend of mine. I never got to know Rush at all, but David's a good friend of mine, endorsed this and most of my other books. And, um, I, I wouldn't put myself on Rush's area code, but from our little corner of the universe, this feels a little bit like our own little Dan's bake sale is what I said to Jesse this morning, meaning a, <laughs> a viral moment that our audience took way beyond what we were capable at that point. And just took this thing to another level. It's it's fun. It's humbling. It's really it's really amazing to watch. My our publisher was like the day we came out, or the day before. He said, sensing a lot of advanced buzz for this, getting a lot of inquiries because there were no pre-sales because we went straight to to, to uh, paperback. He's like, I, I think you could maybe get in the top 50 overall of Amazon. And you guys, one percent of books every year get in the top 50 of Amazon. And uh, 
I'm like, wow, that'd be amazing. And then we woke up Tuesday morning and debuted at 24. And by and 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 then four three o'clock Eastern that afternoon, we were number one overall. And everybody was just absolutely speechless. And at the time I'm taping this with you guys right now, it's it's number one overall. And my publisher is even more impressed. It's number two in Kindle because you know they point out that that's where you get a more eclectic list because you have all the 99 cent values and everything else there. And so it's it's me versus the Biden inauguration on print. And then it's me versus horror author Dean Koontz on Kindle. Those are the top two Kindle books right now. That's respectable. No, I mean, yeah. that's that's great. Did you were you familiar with Fauci before you just before you the coronavirus um, mania hit? Never had heard the name in my entire life. I knew nothing about him. Um my my odyssey with this actually predates kind of his emergence. Um, I was sitting in uh, at my house uh, here in Des Moines, in suburban Des Moines. Uh, I've got you know, I'm a Michigan transplant, so I'm a huge Michigan fan. And uh, my basement is my man cave is painted in, in like maize and blue. And so I was sitting down there on March 16th and my lazy boy quietly away from my family the day that we announced 15 days to flatten the curve. And I had read. And I, I had listened to Dr. Michael Osterholm, who works for the Biden administration now. Uh, I had listened to him about three weeks earlier getting interviewed on Joe Rogan's podcast about the severity of this. And a lot of what he said, which was it was bad, but it was not the end of the world that he said on Rogan's podcast has since now turned out to be true. And so I was relaying this information to my audience at the time. And um and I, and I won't mention names because some of them are friends of mine, but a couple of people with big names in conservative media whose opinions I respect were all over Twitter the day that we announced the 15 days to flatten the curve, warning uh, people like me, hey, if you haven't read this Imperial College survey, you don't know how bad this is. You really need to read it. Mm-hmm. So I went and re- I went and read the Imperial College survey. And uh, after I read it, my heart just sank, you know, and I've got kids, three teenagers upstairs, and you start thinking about the future, and are you living in a Walking Dead episode? And um, I don't want to act like I regularly hear the audible voice of God, okay? But there was, a, there was a still small voice in the back of my head that said to me, you need to Google Jeremy Grantham, or I'm sorry, you need to Google Imperial College and climate change. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. And what came up was the name of a man named Jeremy Grantham, who's one of the primary benefactors of Imperial College. He's a multi-billionaire. He's donated over about or about 80 percent of his uh, wealth to stopping what he calls the 250 year uh, carbon fuels bubble. He's a complete global warming cultist alarmist. There's an entire wing of Imperial College named after him. Uh, Imperial College, the day after the, the day after their survey put out an ancillary paper that went largely unnoticed, which basically said, now that now that we COVID is here, we can really institute some of these changes uh, to the world that's long been needed, like a great, say, reset, so to speak. And and then I started, I went back and read through the Imperial College survey again, and now I'm connecting dots. And I'm like, well, hey, there's a reason why all these so, so-called mitigation efforts sound a lot like a, green, a proto-Green New Deal. This is ideological. Then you read in the actual model and it says they're unsure of how coronavirus is spread. Other than that, though, totally follow 
our projections of how the virus is going to spread. And that's when I that's when the alarm bells went off and I started saying we're getting played that the virus in, in, in itself may be serious and very real. This model is bunk. And it was that's when I went on the air the next day. Now, if I'm going to do something like that, though, I also had to go to my management at the blaze. Make sure because if I'm wrong, man, we all are out of business if I do something mm-hmm. like that. Right. So I've got to sell them on the merits of my work and assumptions, even if they don't necessarily arrive at the same conclusion. They can see I'm not crazy. I can defend it. So it was really Neil Ferguson and Imperial College that got me started on this road, because that's what originally shut the country down. It was shortly after that Ferguson and his model ended up getting, dis, you know, basically debunked. And and that's when the attention on our show began to turn to Anthony Fauci. Let's back up. I'm glad you brought up the Imperial College and Neil Ferguson and the ties there. But let's back up to mid-March of 2020. And to your point, I know you're not naming names, but look, this was almost 90% of the influencers, pundits, journalists on the right, who were Mm -hmm. all in on that initial 15 days to flatten the curve, stop the spread, whatever. They thought that the Ferguson model was legit. They believed in all these doomsday predictions, 2.2 million dead, even though there was no data. You could tell from just looking at it. It was garbage model, garbage data, made up data that they were using. But that was a huge uh, rift that came very quickly. And it was personal. And it was people who had just been, you know, allies in the fight against impeachment and everything else. Trump was mm-hmm. sort of on a roll. We were looking like we were winning. And then this huge split on the right about lockdowns uh, and the threat of the virus and uh, the small handful of us who are like, no, 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 this this we don't need to do this. This is going to be a slippery slope to somewhere we don't want to go. And, um, you know, I think that those people, some of them, most of them, I think, are coming around. But that was a really pivotal moment. I agree. And. I think two things have happened in the early uh, in the early Biden era. And part of this is political. OK. And when when it's your White House and, quote unquote, your guy, you know, and, and you've got Republican governors, it was there's some rare cases. My governor, Kim Reynolds, did it. Uh, Christine Ohm did it. Um, Brian Kemp did it, which then showed his complete lack of balls and uh, clarity over the election, uh, even more glaring because it was, I mean, this guy stood up to the Trump White House. I mean, Trump was up there criticizing him from the White House over reopening a state too fast, you know? And so this confused our messaging. We were already divided because, you know, Trump's of double mind. He's hearing on one side one day, the other side the other day, it's his native New York. You know, he knows these hospitals. He knows these people. They're getting, he knows Fauci. Um, and then there's the instincts of what people like Meadows and others are telling him. And then there's the instinct of what people like Fauci and Burks are telling him. Uh, and, tr- and so they're they're double minded in the White House. That that's going to lend itself to being double minded with red state governors. I don't want to get out in front of my own Republican gov- president. If I do, will he embarrass me uh, if I'm wrong? Uh, and then that opened the door for blue state governors to say this is the tyranny we've been looking to take advantage of and run with it. And so I think that confused a lot of the messaging and a lot of the organized opposition throughout much of last year outside of kind of our ragtag rebel alliance, 
what I think changed is with the Biden era is without Trump there um, and the and the Trump White House there that made people wonder, you know, is that kind of where we take our lead from? The opposition is now far more obvious because there's no built in will, no trust of him at all on our side. And so that made it. I think that gave people permission to be more blunt about the situation. And then and then there were two mistakes uh, that Fauci and the administration made in the last few months that I think have really set the stage for the all out rebellion you're seeing now. The first was the new CDC director's map that she put out. Now, she had just gone on Rachel Maddow show. That's the Tucker Carlson for Democrats. That's their most watched, most influential show. All right. She had the white. She already she had just gone on Rachel Maddow show and kind of came off the top rope against her own White House that it was safe to go back to school. The White House said, hey, man, we work for the teachers unions. You can't do that. And so about a week later, she comes out with this map. I don't know if you ladies remember this. It was a map, a color coded map of where it was safe to go to school in person. And it was different codes. And now this is the middle of freaking January. And she said the only place, according to her map, where it was safe for the kids to fully be in person and to have extracurricular activities like sports was International Falls, Minnesota. That was the only safe place. It was (laughs) it was it was it was beyond ridiculous. It was so ridiculous that they're getting criticized by hosts on CNN and MSNBC because that's just not defensible. There's a lot of soccer moms that watch those channels that want to send their kids back to school. All right. And they're watching half the country play high school football, high school basketball. My, my state was the first to reintroduce high school sports last June. So that, that was an indefensible position. That was number one. And the second where I think we saw some people on our side with big platforms who had been overly cautious really decide to let it rip is when Anthony Fauci went with the, even after you're vaccinated, still be a leper messaging. Wow, man, hot damn. I, I mean, that's an offer. Let me take an, an untested experimental mRNA vaccine to get my life back, only to not get my life back, triple mask, and still live in a, in a, in a dank hole. Sign and then complain up. about what? vaccine hesitancy, right? Like, you yes. know, and then be like, why don't people want to take the vaccine? I know. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, imagine, I don't know how long it's been since you ladies have had a first date, but imagine this rolls right up to you. Guys, I have no job. I live with my mom. And hey, would you like to see my butt pimple? I'm like, I'm like, you're like, well, here's my number. In fact, what are you doing tonight? Right. I mean, goodness, what an offer that is. Who's going to say no to that? That's <laughs> marry a, me. And I, I'd be and like, I marry think, me. <laughs> and I think when Fauci did that, that was a that was a last straw for whatever remaining remnant there was of opposition. And I think those two events kind of set the stage for a book like mine to come in and say, all right. We can't just be emotional and react, though. We need, the, as you said, Julie, we need the receipts. So here they are. So I do. Um, there's so many things we want to get into, but um, I think the timing of your book was perfect, too, because Fauci's credibility is really beginning to slide, not just with those of us who didn't trust him to begin with. But I do think a lot of his pivots back and forth and then his cheerleading for these vaccines. He now sounds like a big pharma spokesman instead of a public health expert. Um, But I think he's really done a lot of damage to himself the past, as you said, since Joe Biden was inaugurated. And then this weekend, over the past weekend, 
And when he's basically suggesting child abuse, that kids continue to mask themselves, even when they're playing with other children, when there's no reason for that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, where uh, and this guy shows zero remorse for the terrible, destructive, inhumane advice that he's given. Um, So, you know, what are what are your thoughts about that? What are your, say, top five Anthony Fauci pivots? Uh, that we should continue to, you know, kind of leverage to further destroy his credibility. Well, to your point, Julie, all branch Covidians voted for Biden last year, but not mm-hmm. all Biden voters are branch Covidians. There's a lot of people that voted for Joe Biden on the notion that the mean tweets would go away. We would get this virus under control and they don't want to be told now uh, it's getting bleak. It's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Florida NV a is becoming a yes. A new variant. Yes, Florida NV is a real thing now. Okay, soon we're going to be selling blue pills in men's podcasts for Florida NV. Okay, I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think people are there's a lot of people, regardless of how they voted last November, that are that are like, okay, at some point we have to get back to real life. But this is not, as you said, there, this is a long pattern. I, I, if I could pick, there's a million. I mean, narrowing it down to five was hard. And our book tackles a bunch of them. But to me, the two biggest things, and you guys, if you look at the book, you'll see we've got sitting members of Congress have endorsed it. DeSantis has endorsed it. You know, uh, I'm going back to friends of mine who are in public office right now in D.C. And I'm like, uh, if if and when you get power again, we need a 9-11 style tribunal about this entire last year. And Mm -hmm. to me, there are two questions in particular that we have to get the answers to. There's more than that, but these two in my mind take precedence. Number one, what when I said earlier that I could see that there was a lot of the same fake junk science, scientism behind climate change, global warming, driving things like the Imperial College model. What surprised me though is, is I thought that would mean that this was gonna become a proxy fight for global warming and it's Steve Dace and the Blaze and Breitbart and you know the, the usual suspects against academia. What shocked me the day after, see, Boris Johnson, who I, I believe is, is the one living example that long COVID is a thing. He has lost his damn mind. He's insane. COVID has made him insane. And yes. he's gone from Brexit to uh, uh, he's literally got a fetish, like a, a BDSM fetish for lockdowns. OK, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I, somebody ought to walk up to Mr. Boris Johnson and say, hello, Mr. Gray. I, I mean, it's just sickening. And what what but originally Boris Johnson was going to go with the Sweden approach. That was the original plan. Our own government with the Imperial College survey uh, pressured him not to do that. And the day after the UK switched its policy and went with uh, the lockdowns, experts at freaking Oxford, Oxford guys, number one rated university in this world where they also teach there are 57 genders and we're going to fry from climate change in a a day. Experts from Oxford were on the record the next day, like Sunetre Gupta, who's one of the authors of that great Barrington Declaration, Mm -hmm. saying this is not science. This model is junk. They were totally ignored. From the very beginning here in our country, we had experts at Stanford, one of the top five universities in this country. And this is even before the name Scott Atlas was even known. There were other experts, John Ioannidis, 
Um, I always forget how to pronounce Jay's last name. But these were experts at Stanford that were already saying, this is not good data. This is not right. Tony Katz is at Yale University. He was writing in the Washington Post, the very, or the, I'm sorry, the New York Times, the first weekend after lockdowns. This is junk science. I mean, folks, you know, Harvey Risch at, at Yale, Martin Koldorf at Harvard, um, experts at Carnegie Mellon, Rockefeller University. These are elite of the elite universities in this country. And from the beginning, they said, this is not science. And they were all ignored. And I think we must know how come, you know, I don't know, you know, uh, typically the, the University of Washington is where the IHME model came from. The mm -hmm. University of Washington is, is, a, is a public university you go to when you can't get into Stanford. Like no one in their right mind would be like, let's listen to the guys at UW first before Stanford. No <laughs> one would do that. We did. We mm -hmm. did that. We were like, hey, let's ignore the Harvard people and listen to what the UW folks think, backed by Bill Gates. We need to know the answer to why, if unless you comported to one narrative, it didn't matter what your academic credentials were, you were ignored. That's, to me, the of the first of the two major questions we've got to get an answer to. Well, those people were just shut down. I mean, I think another benefit, or not benefit, or consequence, I guess, of this whole coronavirus panic is that people really saw the invisible hand of technology make itself known where people that you just named were literally erased. You know, yes. it, it's yep. not like you could go to YouTube and get a bunch of information and then make an informed decision by listening to Stanford professors, Yale professors, Oxford professors, Harvard professors, because they were erased and silenced on all of the social media platforms and YouTube. So I think stop, another just consequence- Just stop to think about what you just asserted, because you're right. What, you're, what you just told our audience is that some avocado toast obsessed millennial algorithm engineer at, at <laughs> Facebook, at YouTube, claimed to know more about what was pertinent information than people at Oxford, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, they told us to trust the experts, but, but which ones? And, and that is mind numbing. That's tyrannical. And I, and I never understood when, the, when we launched the 15 days and the country's out of pause, why, why didn't the Trump administration bring all those ex, those experts in, let them have it out, roll tape, put them on camera and let them fight it out. Let the best argument, best data, best minds win. Why did we always go with one narrative every time? Well, you know, I think Trump and we don't always defend Trump here. So but in his defense, I will say that Trump, like most Americans, do did not understand that the sciences and our credentialing institutions are politicized. They mm -hmm. think, oh, this guy's a doctor. He worked on AIDS and Burks with their scarf. Again, right. AIDS. Right. These are noble civil servants and they are serving the public and they're trying to cure people. Nobody knew like Trump or again, most Americans, they don't think that these scientists 
have a political agenda. They don't realize that you don't ascend in the government bureaucracy unless yep. you are actually a politician. That's true. So, yep. you know, I'm sure Trump was sheltered. Um, It's not easy to get to Trump. He's surrounded by people that kept him kind of insulated. He probably thought Fauci's just this Italian dude that is a doctor and Burks and they sound like they know what they're talking about. Who knew that that it would this was really a political football, except people who followed the global warming fiasco like you mm -hmm. and Julie, who realize mm -hmm. that this is just yeah. a political tool. So I'll just say that in Trump's defense. Now, it didn't take much. It didn't take very long to realize what was going on. However, I will say that he was very slow. And by the time he brought Scott Atlas on, you know, there had been a fair amount of damage. Mm -hmm. Which which brings me, I think this is the second question we must get an answer to. And, and, and the reason we need to get answers to these questions, it's not just so we don't ever fall for another authoritarian scam like this, but we're not guaranteed, you know, there have been great plagues all throughout the history of our species. We're now, we've now conditioned a good portion of the country that if indeed we faced a Captain Trips level event, don't believe them because they lied to you before. That's not mm -hmm. good either, okay? So we need a plumb line. We got to, we, we have too many memory, too much memory holding in our culture. That Vegas shooting memory hole, this memory hole, that memory hole. We, we need to actually get to the bottom of something. So here's the second question. On February 28th of last year, Anthony Fauci wrote uh, his analysis of COVID-19's fatality rate for the mm -hmm. New England Journal of Medicine, maybe the most esteemed medical journal in the country. And if you go read that, because and we were kind enough to cite it in our book approximately nine times. <laughs> All right. We kept bringing it up over and over again. If you go read that, his analysis is that that in the end, the fatality rate for covid will be somewhere around, given it's an upper respiratory virus, how much we know about the way they spread. It'll be somewhere around, even if it's really bad, a, around a, what a pandemic flu would be. I and mean, what you'll notice, if you, all the things that Trump said and did that people vilified, he all got these were all things force fed to him by Fauci. So the whole talking point, the, it's just a bad flu. That's what Fauci wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine. He wrote that in their journal. Well, if you look at it at the time we're taping this, the 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 current COVID fatal, case fatality rate in America for COVID is 1.8 percent, meaning the amount of cases to how many people die. If you look at the infection fatality rate, our CDC estimates there's at least 10 times more infections than we have tested. Now, if you look at the antibody testing we've done, the number is actually much higher than that. All right. But we'll go with the CDC number because it makes for good math. So if the case fatality rate is 1.8 percent, that would make the infection fatality rate, which is the better, more accurate measure of the lethality of a contagion. That would make the lethality or the, the IFR 0.18 percent. The IFR for flu is 0.1, which means it's a very serious pandemic level flu. Exactly what he wrote. Now, there's a JAMA study out today that estimates that we have that we have overestimated our COVID death count by about 200,000. If that study is correct, that drops mm -hmm. the CFR and the IFR way down now. Okay. Wait, are you saying uh, in in just the U.S. it's been yes. overestimated 200,000? Yeah, that yeah makes in, the, sense. in the U.S. Gosh. Yeah, looking at the U.S. death the death rates. Yes. Okay. So, if, but let's just I've not had a chance to look closely at that study yet. So let's just throw it out and go with the actual numbers we have. The, the CFR is 1.8%. I wonder how many Americans know that. The IFR is 0.18%. What that means is, if you are exposed to COVID-19, whether you know it or not, 
there is a 99.82% chance you're not going to die. The median age for death of COVID-19 in America is 78. That's the average lifespan in America. Over half, about half of all deaths with COVID in America took place in a long-term care facility. So if you're not in a nursing home, I mean, that, nursing home residents are about 8% of the American population. That's where about half of the deaths have taken place. So what's the IFR and CFR for those of us that aren't in a long-term care facility? About 80% of the people that have been hospitalized or, or have died with COVID were categorized as morbidly obese. I don't know how many of our people don't know these things. So Fauci knew these trends before any of us did. He wrote them in the New England Journal of Medicine. But then on March 11th, 11 days later, and this is after he went on 60 Minutes and said, you don't need a mask. This is after he went to the White House and said, you can go on spring break on a cruise if you want. On March 11th, he went to Congress and said, he went full Denethor, if you know you're in Lord of the Rings. Run for your lives. Minister Trip is on fire. It's Captain Trips. This is it. That night, the NBA shut down, college basketball did, concerts went dark. By the end of the week, the country was shut down. What we need to know is what did Fauci know and learn between February 28th, when he wrote in the most esteemed medical journal in the country, when he, when he gave a moderate, modest warning about what we were up against, to the absolute fear porn that he unleashed on March 11th. We need to know what stream of information data did he receive that changed his viewpoint or lack thereof. We have to get to the bottom of that. If we're going to live in a bureaucratic tyranny where unelected people that no, no, not one vote was cast for get to change the lives of every person, every family, every home, every church, every school, every business, to the point, can I go outside and breathe without a mask? On Monday, this was the first time a statewide desert known as Nevada allowed you to go play pickup basketball at a park. But the casinos, with all that cigarette smoke, have been open for months. All right. This is flat earth voodoo. We need to know if we're going to give this much power to non to, to unelected bureaucrats, then we need to hold the information streams they're getting accountable. What changed in just those 11 days with Anthony Fauci? Do you have any um, ideas? Like, do you have any, you know, hints or I mean, it, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. You know, do you have any suspicions of what what? you know, what it might be, what influenced him. I, I highly doubt that he got a pile of data because I don't think that that's what the data showed. So somebody must have had a talking to him or, I don't know, let him in on a bigger plan because um, based on his initial analysis of this, I always found it suspicious that we weren't telling people if we really didn't want people to get sick, go to the hospital and die, why weren't we telling people to get healthy? Like we know exactly. that people yep. who have low vitamin D, people who are overweight, why don't we tell people, look, you're at a really high risk if you're diabetic, if you're overweight, if your vitamin D is low, here are the things you can do to mitigate your risk. And instead we're like, here's a mask and don't go outside yes. and lock your kids up and deprive them of companionship uh, yep. to degrade your mental health, which of course does affect your physical health as well. So. I'm just curious, you know, it, what might explain that? Or do you really just not know? I mean, I, I have no idea, although I, susp I, I mean, I'm very suspicious of all government employees. <laughs> so, you know, I so think there's like a big picture. you pay attention for five minutes is what you're telling me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. If, 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 if I had to, and some of the 
smartest and dumbest things I've done in my career is when I project uh, theories of motivations. So I'm kind of hesitant to do it. But if I had to connect dots on what I think most likely has occurred here is I think somewhere between February 28th and March 11th, Anthony Fauci began to doubt whether he could trust the initial data coming from WHO in China. Unfortunately, he couldn't blow the whistle on that because his bureaucracy is knee deep in cahoots with the Chinese government. And to the point of sending millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And I think that coming to light, of course, puts him in a very bad light. Uh, and then we start getting into really uncomfortable questions. We start talking about things like, what did you know? Treason. Uh, as Yoda once said, to a very dark path, this goes. Okay. And so I think trying to essentially juggle that beach ball alongside the realization that maybe I can't really trust the data here from my simpaticos at the same time. And he's working for now an administration that, has, that is highly skeptical of Chinese hegemony. Chinese hegemony is threatened right now by its chief economic sector facing uh, huge up, the worst uprising since Tiananmen Square on the streets of Hong Kong. You throw all of those things into a cauldron um, and, and if I had to guess, he thought that with his singular control, he could contain the Wuhan story, particularly with his media associations. Just, uh, it came out in Newsweek last April. It was largely ignored for almost a year until, uh, Judicial Watch and, uh, Daily Caller brought it back earlier this year with FOIA suits. I think that this was an attempt to essentially kind of just run out the clock, not connect any of those dots. Um, you know, Steve Hilton and has brought this up again with his gain of function stuff he's done on Fox. I think that is, you know, to quote an old saying, the play is the thing in which I'll catch the conscience of the king. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is the thing in which you'll catch the conscience of the king here. I think somewhere along the lines, that association in some way, shape or form, I don't know that I'd go as far as Peter Navarro went on Newsmax yesterday, but in some way, shape, or form, that association compromised Anthony Fauci. Is That would be my prediction. Can I give my prediction? Absolutely. It's your show. It's way worse than yes. yours. Yes. I think he recognized in the twilight of his life and career that this was going to be a way for him to get all kinds of fan appreciation and media attention. I mean, he was starting to, you know, he had been on 60 Minutes. What was that, March sixth or whatever about the masks. March 8th. Yep. March 8th. And so I think maybe he started to realize, you know, if I downplay this or even make it sound realistic, I'm just going to be seen as a bureaucrat. If I ratchet up all the fear, I'm going to be the go-to guy, which of course he has been now for a year. Um, and he's just a twisted, immoral megalomaniac at his core. Or maybe he really wasn't. Maybe he just turned into it. But I, see, I see I think what you're saying. saying. I never, thing. I never thought of that aspect, and that's chilling too. It, maybe it's a combination of both. See, I think we're saying the same thing. One of my favorite movies in 2019 was Yesterday. Did you guys see that film? No. I did. All right. I'll so see the, it. So the stoners Lit I hung out with in college. Hallmark movies. Yeah, the stoners I, I hung out with in college one summer got me hooked on the Beatles, and so I'm a huge Beatles fan. Have been for years, and so. 
the film yesterday is about a guy that after there's been like some sort of dimensional uh, interference in the world, it's like the Beatles never existed. And he's the only one since he was actually like in a coma at the time. He's like the only one that remembers the Beatles because he came out of it. And so he starts taking credit. He starts writing and he's, he's a musician on his own. He's just not that good. But he starts uh, just re-releasing Beatles tunes. And people wow. are like, holy crap, this is like the greatest music we've ever heard. Okay. Um, and then eventually his conscience gets to him at the end. And he comes out at his biggest concert yet and tells the world, hey, I stole these songs. They're not really mine. And that kind of speaks to the effect of what you're talking about, Julie, which is that in, if, in the strategy, the media strategy he concocted in order to maybe navigate the, um, the, 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 the swamp soup that, you know, Tucker and Hilton and Fitton and others are, you know, kind of pouring through right now with his associate, the NIH and its association with Wuhan. That along the way, though, playing this role, he realized I'm going to be a big star. And it, and if you know anything, you know, you guys are ladies, so you, you know probably a little bit about the fragile male ego, I would imagine. So um, you, you, you give a mouse a cookie or you give a man a little shot of significance mm -hmm. and he can run with it a long, long way, way over his skis, maybe to the point that it's even beyond your control. And at that point, you just feel like it's a role I have to play. And it's a role that is that I get, you know, rewarded for playing. So he definitely wanted the hero edit in this in yeah. this tale. I think I mean, look, he's 80. Why hasn't he retired? Um, right. I mean, it, it's weird. He would retire with probably his full salary, which I think is well over four hundred thousand dollars a year as a government bureaucrat, which is ridiculous. But I also think you're on to something with China, not just the Wuhan Virology Institute, which if that had been demonized and come under scrutiny, he would absolutely be implicated. But there are there are other interests that greatly profit from a relationship with China that has to be preserved. If you go back to, again, March February, people were livid. All our PPE was from China. Our drugs were from China. People mm -hmm. were angry. They were asking questions. Why don't we make our own drugs here, our pharmaceuticals? Why are we waiting for, I think there was a ship that turned around with PPE that was necessary for our hospital workers. People were asking questions. Nope, those questions aren't being asked anymore. People don't seem so angry anymore. Nobody's asking, why are drugs not made here in the US anymore? So I, I do... I do think there are other interests that may have been made clear to him. Again, this is all just speculation, but it is curious that the initial public outrage over what, you know, the Chinese involvement in the virus and our dependency on China has kind of just disappeared off the radar. I think that's interesting is an interesting word to use. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think we're at a point right now, I said this on my show the other day, I, I hate to say this, but I mean, if, if it came to a military conflict with China, I don't I don't believe we could win it. Um, I, I, I don't I think we lack between if you look at the power sectors of this country, a good amount of them want us to be like China. I mean, that's you know, we I said last year, mandatory mask wearing is a proto conditioning for uh, mandatory vaccination and then mandatory vaccination would be a proto conditioning for a social credit system like what you see in China. And that's the road we're going down right now. And then the power sectors that don't want us to be China uh, want us to be Wokistan. 
like the military. And so we're, you know, I mean, Wokistan is, is, is grist for the Shikom mill, has no chance up against those highly trained, masculinized uh, robots that they call a citizenry over there. That has no chance whatsoever. And, and the fact that, you know, in, in past in past eras in America, you know, they're trying to concoct right now in the media this narrative of Asian violence as a as a thing of white supremacy. And it's almost all not white people doing it to them. But in the past in America, if we're honest about our history, you know, we did do Japanese internment camps. If we're honest about our history, our history in the past has been when when a singular group has threatened our position as a as a people. We have we have at times gone overboard in vilifying and demonizing those people as part of our overall instinct to protect our heritage. And it's it's had to be, you know, uh, reeled in, confronted. Our generation is the first to actually say, you know, in, in retaliation for the Shycoms infecting us with this virus, we should actually become more like the Shycoms. We're the first generation of Americans to follow the opposite impulse. As opposed to becoming overly vilifying and overly stereotyping of, 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 of the, the people that may look or think like the society that did this to us, we're more like, wow, it's a pretty good idea to infect other people and, man- and manipulate your currency and forcibly abort and put the church underground. We should maybe follow suit. And I think that speaks very uh, foreboding things about the spirit of the age we're currently in. Well, which is why I want to bring up another really problematic country right now, and that is the United States of America. (laughs) Um, You talk about, you touch on your book. I mean, I think we can all agree we're beyond shocked at not just most of the country who bought into this without thinking, but people we know, people who we think, you know, have good sense or they're educated or they're business owners, you know, people should know better, who immediately jumped on all of this. And to this day, still cling to masks or double masking or socially distancing or whatever. So you talk about the cult, uh, power of the cult yes. in your book. Um, I mean, I think we recognize that most of our fellow countrymen are completely insane. The arc of human history is that <clears throat> a culture, every culture, it doesn't matter language, custom, creed, color, Every culture is either going to worship the creator or worship idols. That is the arc of history. That that's mm-hmm. that is everywhere we have existed as a species. And, you know, um, I think it was Gallup came out with a poll uh, earlier this week for the first time since they've been analyzing this question. A majority of Americans are unchurched. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily as bad of a thing. If you look at the state of most churches, it could be it's not just, wow, we're heavily secular. It's also like wow, the people running these churches are real wussies and I don't want to be anything like them. So it's it's a combination of those two instincts kind of working together for this outcome. And I think that it's not a coincidence that the more secularized we become, the more sectarian we become, idolatrous cultures always turn on themselves because my idol is better than yours. No, my idol is better than yours. My cult, uh, my pagan deity, my, my way of doing things should be the way that we do things. My experts are better than your experts. I've got experts. I've got magicians, wizards, experts. We, they used to call them magicians and wizards in, in other times. We call them experts in ours. <laughs> my, my experts are more expertise than your experts. They can mm-hmm. conjure up more expertism than yours can. And that's what we're descending into right now. Uh, and, and, and that also is where I get my identity 
You know, this is just another the Branch Covidian cult is just another manifestation of the same instinct that causes the racial identity cult, the gender identity cult, the sexual behavior cult, all these things where uh, this is where I get my meaning, my purpose, my identity. It's how I fill that Blaise Pascal God shaped hole in my heart. The, The mask is 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 this is the is the talisman every pagan religion has one now the whether it's the pagan uh, pan the half the classic half goat half human demon that they worshiped in Caesarea Philippi whether it's the fire chamber to Molech where the Israelites threw their babies into the fire in the be- valley of Ben Hinnom it's the it's the Asherah pole in, Ca- in Old Testament Canaan that's what the mask is it's a talisman it's a sign that mm. I belong that I'm superior I'm better I'm one of the chosen. I'm one of the special. How dare you defy that order? That's we're 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 living through. You know, when I was a kid, if I got bored, I loved history. I kind of before we had Wikipedia and computers and the internet, I'd sometimes just read in the Encyclopedia Britannica and read about old ancient empires and why they fell. It looks a lot like this. We're living wow. kind of through an Edmund Gibbon book, the, ro- the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. That's sort of what you're looking at right now. And, and I think barring moral and spiritual revival, um, we're heading to a, an outcome that will begin with first, uh, of, you know, and Ron, what, what your governor there, Julian Florida, is doing is sort of an introductory version of this, like a militant federalism, where he's not just using his office to defend the traditions and wishes of the people of Florida, but he is actively defending you from your own federal government. Like he's inter he's interpositioning himself between you and the feds. I think we're going to see more and more of that. That's sort of a introductory version of a breaking off process. And the problem that that's going to have though, is that this pagan spirit of the age in these blue States, it's like Lyndon LaRouche supporters multiplied by Jehovah witnesses times a thousand. They will follow you. They will move to Texas. They will move to right. Arkansas. They, they believe in the superiority of their views. They'll take over your school boards. They will knock on your doors like Jehovah's Witnesses do every damn Saturday. You're trying to mow your lawn. They won't leave you alone. OK, there's no amount of I'm not interested that they will take. I never understood why Jehovah's Witnesses believed only a certain amount of only only you know a certain 400,000 people or whatever were getting saved and yet there were 4 million members in their own cult shouldn't they argue with each other first who's getting saved before bothering the hell out of me on a saturday okay <laughs> that that is that is what that is what spirit of the age leftism progressivism is it's not going to let us leave it's not going to let us live quietly it won't let us do it and so i i, I fear the road we're heading down as a culture min- minus revival. Wow. That's, that's depressing. <laughs> it is scary, but I just want to go back true. Just a, a bit to um, when we were talking about the Chinese military and remind everyone that one thing we have that China doesn't is flight suits for pregnant pilots. And yes, indeed. So I mean, and and Wokistan. yes, there's indeed. that, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that's that's not a joke uh, or it is a joke. I mean, it's what I think what you said is right. Um, it is scary to see all of these people in New York and California fleeing to Texas or Florida to get away from the laws and the people that they put in office who are actually tyrants. And, you know, the first thing that they're going to do is start 
changing the neighborhoods that they move into and, you know, trying to get some critical race theory put into some of the school districts. I mean, you know, this is going to happen. And thank God for Ron DeSantis, who's been so brave and really resisted the pressure and the mockery. You know, there's at least 500 New York Times and Washington Post reporters all over Florida desperately looking for the hidden COVID deaths because they just can't stand the fact that everybody in Florida isn't dead. And also Georgia, because we were told Georgia was mass sacrifice. Remember, it was human sacrifice. That was at the that Atlantic. Opened the Atlantic Georgia. that was attacking Alex Berenson today. That's yes. right. I saw that. They, the they, they wrote that, that, that Georgia was an experiment in human sacrifice. They literally wrote those words. Yes. Well, I mean, but, and, and they're desperate to kind of erase that from the narrative because things like that make it harder for them to keep their control, which is by frightening people. If people do see kids out playing and they're healthy and they're fine and people at work and, you know, didn't, weren't we told there was going to be a mass death after Texas opened up two or three weeks ago and it's their, their rates still going down. Um, And then California and New York, their stuff's going up. So, you know, this is the more this happens, the harder it is to ignore for people who are actually, no matter what their political beliefs, most of them are sick of being cooped up. And they're certainly yep. sick of having their children with them 24-7. And then they have to see what horrible things are going on in school. I mean, certainly the school the school teachers, the image of the teacher has certainly fallen during this um, fiasco. So where do we go from here, Steve? What do you where do you think we're going to move as a country with you know, based on what we've seen, Fauci's still around, which should tell everybody that, you know, he really is a partisan um, and not really a scientist because he's still here. So where do we go from now? Is Fauci going to be on the horrible Sunday shows still all the time? I think Fauci will be gone by the end of the year. Uh, He will be the scapegoat. They will turn on him. He will be the scapegoat for, as I said earlier, all branch Covidians voted Biden. Not all Biden voters are branch Covidians. There's a lot of Karens in the cul-de-sac demanding you wear a mask who are sick and damn tired of their kids being home every day and want them back in school. We've reached that point. Uh, and so I think the I think uh, the, the Democratic Party, the blue state governors, as they lose more and more control over this, you look at the recall Gavin Newsom is facing, a scapegoat will be needed. And I think it will be him. I mean, the first rule of a assassination is you is, assa- is, is kill the assassins. And so he did his part to help them nuke the last administration. Now he's got to go. I think he'll be gone by the end of the year. On a macro level, in terms of where we are, I think we've got to admit two things to ourselves as, a, as, a, as an alternative. You know, on our show, we, we talk about the two Americas as there's the left America and then there's the le- what's left of America. Okay, and the challenge we have in the what's left of America is we got a lot of different viewpoints in there. Uh, You have uh, moderate Democrats. You've got uh, libertarians, conservatives, right wingers, uh, people who put the fun in fundamentalism like me. People who are irreligious, agnostic, that just believe in some form of Randian objectivism, common sense. And so trying to get all these various viewpoints and worldviews together. Uh, uh, missionally is difficult, but they face this in the founding fathers too. I mean, Thomas Paine would have been your Randian libertarian of that era. Uh, men like Benjamin Rush and Patrick Henry <clears throat> were uh, were devout Bible thumpers. People like Benjamin Franklin were irreligious. 
And so they, they managed to do it. We can do it too. But for that to happen, we've got to emulate what they did. We have to admit who we are and admit who the enemy is. So look at the, look at the enemy here. About 100,000 people in the last decade left Texas or left California and moved to Texas. The, the, the end result of that was Beto O'Rourke almost beat Ted Cruz in a Senate election. A white guy, a straight white guy, almost beat a Republican Hispanic in a state that about 40 percent of the vote is, is Hispanic in a Senate race. Mm. Which means a lot of those people that left that fled California went there and voted for the guy who honestly told them, I'm going to California, you're Texas. That defies common sense. You're not going to show there is no argument for GDP or anything else. No materialistic argument. You can show people if they're that far gone, if they're that there's that much cognitive dissonance, then we're going to this requires a theological, philosophical level of engagement like like. You know, we've got to retrain people, reteach people. We're, it, we're, we're beyond citing statistics and arguments when people are that far gone. I think we have to admit that we have lost the country, that we have to disciple a culture again, that we have to go back to first things again. We've got to, we've got to catechize Amer Americanism into the people again. I, I think we have refused to acknowledge that. But we need to acknowledge that that is the case. That's number one. Number and, and number two is you have to acknowledge who we are. And and that is we don't have time anymore. You know, I, I'm in the first in the nation caucus state in Iowa. Now, I don't think Trump will run again, but the specter of him possibly doing that by now, my phone would have been ringing off the hook five minutes after Trump uh, conceded. No one's calling. Uh, Mike Pompeo came here for about 10 minutes on Friday. That's all that's happened because everything's in a holding pattern with with Trump making the decision of what he's going to do, which is understandable. But we spend so much time on, well, who's the next guy in 2024, 2028? You're not going to have a 2023 mm -hmm. when when corporations like Coca-Cola and Delta and the NBA say we'd rather do business with and Disney with China than you. We need to understand that you're up against a spirit of the age that is not going to accommodate you. There is no more room at the end for you. And you will not get a religious conscience clause, which we usually argue for stupidly. You're going to have to defeat this. Unfortunately, the other side of this has turned politics in a zero-sum game. We're not allowed to set it aside any longer. We're going to have to meet them in that arena. People like legislatures in Georgia are going to have to say to Coca-Cola and to Delta, those are some nice tax credits you used to get. F you. If you if, if, if you want to mess with us, you want to move the, you want to move the MLB All-Star game and, and, and they can't do it alone. The rest of our governors need to stand up and say, you know what, if, if you want to just do all of your events and all of your and all of your uh, plants and fulfillment centers in the five or six states, because the rest of these states don't really care about this. They're just virtue signaling. If you want to do them really all in the five or six, seven states that really believe in this tripe, enjoy all of their high taxes and regulation, screw you on the way out the door. We need to, right. we need to confront all of these entities at this level. We need to be prepared to defy federal courts. The, a governor like Ron DeSantis, I hope he has a speech ready. When, he, when, when, a, when a federal court, the Ninth Circuit on the other side of the continent, tells him that he can't, he can't immunize his people from vaccine passports, is he prepared 
to stand up and say, really appreciate the opinion of the Ninth Circuit. I'll flush it down the toilet along with the rest of the waste material I've deposited today. Mm-hmm. All right. That's Good what point. Christy Nome should have done. That's her fear, aside from the Chamber of Commerce. But we're going to lose in the courts. But what she really told the people of South Dakota is they're really governed by some pagan judges on the other side of the continent that never voted for. And anything they come up with, anything, any, no matter how damnable, she will impose it on them. I think we have to be prepared to use the word no and hell no and bleep no a lot more and call a lot more bluffs and say, hey, like they said, like, like Val Kilmer said in the great movie Tombstone, I'm your Huckleberry. Let's play. You want to play this puppy out? You want to make this a zero sum game? Then let's go there. Get the hell out of my state. Enjoy California. F you. We need a lot more of that. That's what it's going to take. Well, Georgia did do do that. I don't know if you saw today that they um, voted down a tax break for Delta. Yes, I did. So I, yes. And they admitted that they 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 basically said, yeah, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. And I apl- applaud that. And I agree with you. There needs to be a lot more. It it there needs to be a lot more scorched Here's earth. Here's why we need this. Yeah. I, you guys are probably both moms, right? Okay. I'm a dad. We have to discipline. What what what's happened here is, in any war, there are rules of engagement. And if one side is permitted to consistently violate the rules of engagement, they have an advantage. And so we used to have rules of engagement in America. We don't drag corporate America into our sectarian political fights, for example. Um, We don't turn our kids Little League games or family gatherings into political war zones, etc. The other side has violated all of these rules of engagement. And they have faced no backlash for it. They're never punished for it. We need to punish them. We need to show them like Sean Connery, the untouchables, the Chicago way. If you want, if you want to invade my state with wokeism, I will invade your share price and stock price. Are you sure? Mutual. It's Reagan versus the Soviets. Why he walked away at Reykjavik uh, in the in the first summit with 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 Gorbachev. Call the bluff. Are you sure you want mutually assured destruction? Because we will give it to you. That was the point of the arms race to show the Soviets that the nuclear, a nuclear war was unwinnable. So stop trying to spread your hegemony with that threat, to disincentivize it. We need to do this to the wokists. We need to show them there will be pain, punishment, that if you act out like the child at Walmart, we will not buy you what you want. We will whoop your ass right there in front of everybody. That's what we need to show. If we do not do that, they will keep taking from us. We need to punch back. I and to that point, and I I am in suburban Chicago, and that's where I cut my political teeth, and I've watched all the Chicago my where my husband's involved in politics in the city too. I'm not in Florida yet. I he will be my governor someday. Oh, soon, I thought you lived there. I'm sorry, my bad. No, okay. no, that's all right. No, I I sort of go back and forth more frequently than uh, I have before. But I always think in the back of my head when I see how the Republicans just capitulate time and time again. You know, what would Obama do? What would old man Daly do? You know, what, how the machine, mm-hmm. Chicago machine, and it mm-hmm. works, right? And it didn't just work for the Democrats. It worked for the their constituents, you know, as bad as it was, they knew what they were doing and they knew how to get political power and they knew how to use it. And yes. that's what's so frustrating, I think, sitting here next to I think the greatest political city ever conceived because for the bad and the good why we are not taking more cues from what 
what happens, what's always traditionally happened in Chicago. Um, and you do see a little bit of that in Ron DeSantis. You saw a lot of it from Brian Kemp, actually, before the election. Agreed. Yeah. I do want to get. He defied credit. Disney on the pro-life bill. He defied. Yes, you're exactly right. Yeah. Well, I think you, that's Trump why that's why Kemp was so weakened by the election stuff. Yeah. Listen, if he was a puss the entire time, we would just say that guy's a puss. OK, but right. we saw that this guy actually has some stones. We saw him stand up on the life bill. We saw him stand up on COVID. Hell, he stood up to his own. What, Dude, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is running front page headlines of Trump condemning Brian Kemp for reopening That's the state right. too fast. All right. And he and he did it anyway. So the fact that he didn't stand tall over the election uh, disaster is indicative of the fact that it's the same thing with Christy Noem. It's why that, that's also why she's under so much heat. She also defied her own White House and, and COVID stand last year. So we know it's not like she doesn't have it in her. And so why then would you do it on that? But then you won't do it on this. Right. And that's what's made DeSantis so intriguing. It's not that he's you wonder, is he another Scott Walker, a guy that uh, found his one niche going after mm-hmm. AFSCME and, and, the, and the government and the and the government sector unions. And so because we saw him do that so boldly and successfully, we're now projecting that he'll do that on everything else. And then when he shows up in my home state of Iowa as a presidential candidate, I mean, he makes milk toast look like, um, you know, uh, look like a, you know, uh, like a hundred proof cocktail. I mean, he's just a lame candidate and he doesn't even make it to Halloween. He, he has to get out of the race. What we've seen with DeSantis is he has actually taken the 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 ruthless approach on a, a, on issues across the board. It hasn't been one or two pet causes or niches, but collectively, systemically. Because, and here's why we need that. You know, we have this thing. I'm a social conservative or I'm not. I'm a fiscal, but I'm not social. They don't have that on the other side. It is one systematic worldview because it's a religion. OK, it's a religion. It's not a political ideology. There is no pro-choice with exceptions, Democratic politician anywhere in America. All right. And so when we can't beat them with calculations and and um, uh, and and you know, compromises of our own, you know, the idea that this is an a la carte menu. Well, I'm for this or not for that. And that doesn't mean we can't have individual differences or disagreements, but understand that what you're up against isn't, isn't doing business that way. You have to oppose them comprehensively on everything because that's how they're going to oppose you. Well, I I, think I agree. I agree. We talk about this all the time that our, our, I'm using air quotes, our side doesn't realize that we're like actually in a war and that we have these people that insist on taking the high road in a game where there's no rules, right? right? They're like, well, I'm principled. You're going to get steamrolled and that's happened and it's going to keep happening. Um, But I do think some people are getting woke, if you will, or I think we prefer to say based they're, they're figuring it out. But you, we need to really see more of that. And, you know, Brian Kemp should say, OK, Delta, you can leave then. You Then just say, get out. Then go. Yep. Go move uh, move Hollywood. Move all your stuff out. Or, you know, Disney wants to make make rumblings about Florida law. OK, why don't you pick up Disney World and, you know, move it to another state and see, you know. and Or you can pay California taxes to have your, your big all-star games and you know, to set up your, your hub in, I mean, where's Delta going to set up their hub in the, (laughs) you know, in the Southeast, but you're right that we need to call them on their bluff 
and the states need to do a better job of ice it, like it, fortifying themselves from these these this kind of extortion, this corporate extortion. That's my uh, you know I I if it, I, I was raised by a bully, so I'm pretty well versed on them. Every bully in in all of human history only responds to one thing. That's the sight, smell, taste of his own blood. Period. That's it. They don't stop ever. There's no argument, no process, no clause of the Constitution or semicolon that you could cite that will ever get him to stop taking your lunch money. You have to punch him in the nose. That's the only thing they ever respond to. Period. That's exactly right. That's what we're here for. We're here to turn our weaklings into bullies. Let's get going. Get going, people. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Steve, for happy hour. Although we've gone over, which is fine because we've enjoyed this. Time flies yes. by very quickly. Um, tell our readers the name of your book and where you can get it, which I know is Amazon. Give your, give mm -hmm. your pitch. Sure. It's Fauci and Bargain, the most powerful and dangerous bureaucrat in American history. And if you are looking for one place it's got, it does, it has more footnotes than actual pages. All right. This thing is airtight. And as Julia said, it is. brought the receipts yeah. uh, and, and everything is cited, documented. Um, and, and we did that so that everybody listening to us could then go to your, cause this is where the battle is at now, your board of health, your state legislature, your governor, and you can take your arms now with this data so we're not just making philosophical arguments. We're not just making emotional arguments. There's a time and a place for those things. They're not necessarily bad, but we've got to win this one on data. All right. Data wins. And, and you're going to get that. But it's easily readable. It's meant for just regular people like us. And um, uh, and you can get it only at Amazon. I know people hate doing business there, but it, it, it's where over 80 percent of the books in America are sold. There was literally no other way. We could get this book out to as many people as we want to get it to as quickly as we did without going through Amazon. You know, Tucker asked me last night, are you surprised that they haven't censored it? And I'm like, well, you know, we're just I'm just kind of a plucky podcaster on the blaze. So I think I kind of snuck by him. I think if Tucker Carlson or Mark Levin put their name on this. Yeah, I think it gets censored. You bet I do. But now they're kind of stuck. You know, they're in a corner. You can't censor the number one book in America. And if they do. Well, we've built up so much um, market share with the book now that we'll just put 30,000 copies in the Play Store and sell them directly and keep all the money ourselves. So I guess if you're if you're Amazon, you might as well just go ahead and at least get a piece of the action, I guess, and and uh, never let this happen to you again, I would suppose. Well, thank you so much for spending your or your hour and, and 20 minutes with us. And <laughs> thank you for listening to Happy Hour please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes happy hour with Julie and Liz, and then rate it five stars and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to happy hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.